My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. The biggest thing that's happening or has happened to me recently is that we we started to watch only fools and horses and it's been like something i've been thinking oh mm, that would be nice but you know it's so fucking specific especially the the, the the very early ones and you know we definitely have to start at the beginning so it's like uh but but the time was right and we were sort of starting new sitcoms we started it's always sunny in philadelphia as well which is really nice um, because you know we're finishing Brooklyn Nine Nine, and we and Malcolm isn't what it used to be, and we're sort of going through it. But it's nice to have some new blood. So I threw in like you know it's pure season one is six episodes, you know, of Only Fools and Horses. So it's pure classic, you know, English shit. And so I was like, you know, she was really up for it, but I was like, okay. And we watched and we watched it, and you know, massive twist. It is really good. I mean, it's you know, racist and homophobic, but the the structure is tight, the, the most of the jokes land really well. Obviously the chemistry is there from the beginning between especially the two leads. And it's nice seeing Grandad. I was always, you know, naturally it's a real Woody replacing coach. I was always an Uncle Arthur, Albert, um during the war. Um so it's interesting seeing that, you know, but it's it's nice. In the first episode triggers in it. And and he and they do the Dave joke, which is genius when you think about it. It's Andy Kaufman esque because they do the J Dave joke, but it's not funny yet. But Sullivan's got his game plan, so it doesn't get a laugh when he calls Rodney Dave. And then you know, and Rodney and Dell just sort of look at him funny, but that's it. And it, obviously, it's not mentioned. And it's a joke that only becomes funny on like the fifth time, and then it becomes a staple. Uh, so that's that's nice. Boise is in the second episode, so they're building the universe. And I've also noticed we finished, we did the six episodes and it went down really well. And I noticed actually it's it's like you could compare it to Curb in that they basically fail in every episode. And knowing that in the future they do begin to win, it's like Larry, but they have to go through shit. So basically in every episode, one, it's kind of a draw. But basically, yeah, they took, they lose money. They lose everything in one episode, but in the next episode, it's kind of seems to be forgotten. But yeah, it's good stuff. Um, and again, by the third episode, um, there's this really, really lovely bit of physical shtick with um, Jason and Lindhurst, where he's just so comfortable with him at this point, and they got on really well from the off that he's like pulling Rodney's hair whilst he's talking and rubbing his face, his hands all over him, and then like lifting up his sides and being like, "Ooh!" And Rodney's just sitting there with this sort of you know droopy expression, like really dead behind the eyes. It's it's wonderful. And then like at the uh -oh. end, he sort of does like Del Boy sort of goes bump and thumps Rodney on the head, uh, for, and it's all for no reason. And it's totally irrelevant to what he's saying and what's going on. And it's lovely. And there's another bit like that in, the, in another episode. So, yes, it's right from the off. There's um, some episodes I didn't realize were so early, like the line, come on, Rodney, drink up, we're leaving. Oh, are they a couple of ravers? No, they're a couple of geezers. And the women at the bar turn around and they're just like these really butch dudes with like beards and shit. Um, it's, it's amazing. 
Um, so, um, yes, it's gone down and it's nice. And because Marta, of course, is coming at it, not really knowing that the legend status and, you know, the, the crown jewel it became and the characters and everything. So watching it totally fresh is like, oh, when are we going to watch the show about the weirdos? And I'm like, well, that could be any show we watch. It's like, you know what I mean? I'm like, so that's what she called Broken Couples and Horses. Um, at the beginning, do you want to watch the weirdos? And she she enjoyed it. And like I say, they're very tight and very well plotted. Um, and so it's it works. And also she likes Plonker. I'm not sure she'd ever heard Plonker before and she really digs it. And she <laughs> likes, oh, shut fuck. There's a lot of that going around at the moment. So, yeah, so good stuff. So, we, like I say, we've done season one and we will, I assume, move on to season two shortly. So that's very exciting. Um, and one other observation, Dell is actually like, he used to be a mod, we've been told early on. And, you know, he's 35 right at the very beginning. So he's been around in his 20s and like teens, you know, he was a bit of a, a hellraiser. And so he doesn't, like like a lot of blowhards, sort of bigger, big mouth characters, he actually does have the, the, the steel, the balls and everything to knock back down. So there's this massive Indian dude, huge, like a real Gabinda wannabe. And he's doing like this karate shit, like, yeah, wah, yeah, at Dell. And Dell's like, you know, bricking it. And he doesn't, you know, he's obviously, you know, doesn't stand any sort of chance, but he's just smoking his cigar and he doesn't flinch. And he, and the guy's like, yeah, 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 with his fist and his like karate chops right next to Del Boy's face, but he doesn't flinch. And then Del Boy goes, oh, what's that? Is that a copper over there? And the guy's like, ah, and he kicks him in the nuts. And it's like, great, because you, know, you would expect perhaps that he would like run away or faint or something, but he's not. He is actually nails and he doesn't back down and he's cool. So I like oh, yeah. that. Del Boy is legit nails when he needs to be. That's so nice. I, I, I'll be really interested how that goes, Sheppy, in terms of because my my feeling is Del Boy in the show sort of morphs a little, slightly changes. Yeah. There's a there's a I don't even know if it's pre and post millions, but certainly the Dell in the early early eps is kind of he's he's got a lot of pathos as well, because he's sort of looking after his brother and that is sort of a attacks and he can't date properly and all this sort of thing and there's certain yeah. things going on like for him like and there are serious moments right yeah. from the off like there are there are serious things and scenes which don't you know they'll have a punchline right at the end but they are played straight and it's nice so yes you mentioned millions i honestly that's like star wars sequels to me it's like that doesn't for me it really ends when they get the watch and that's the last episode. And they come back and they did, and I really didn't like them. It's like Red Dwarf. I don't count them personally. But my era, again, it's sort of comparable to Cheers. It's 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 uncle, not grandpa. And it's um, Del Boy. His, it's after Wall Street, presumably, came out. And Del Boy says, lunch is for wimps. And he becomes a wannabe yuppie. And that's a regeneration. Um, and that's that works. And so that's my era. And then into the 90s, I'm so surprised. I, I told you, like, the last, you know, because you assume it just ran and ran for decades and decades, which it did, but mainly it was specials every, like, four years or something. So in the 90s, it felt like it never went away. But the final season, season seven, was 91. And that was that's when it ended. So I was very surprised when I saw that. But then, yes, there were Christmas specials, which I'm looking forward to when you eventually get to those. But I am thinking it's probably a good idea to stop when they should have stopped, which is when they get the watch and they get the money at the end. And that's fine. That's a good It's end. an amazing moment. And then it is to jump the shark, like you say. And then they do 
the absolute make Sheppy 12 out of 10 furious, which is, I think they lose it all, don't they, again? Like, having given them the... That was so, like, ridiculous. Anyway. I don't think I even knew that. I don't think... Oh. I, but that's okay. It doesn't touch it. I'm very, very good, as it turns out, at compartmentalising. So um, it doesn't taint. There's no taint, Jimmy. So so that's all right. Hey, listen, um, shall we get a push on? We really should. <laughs> We really should. He really says, should. I'm saying like, so like, as if like, you're the one who hasn't just been talking about any goals and horses for the last 25 minutes. So yeah, let's just get a move on, shall we, Jimmy? I mean, we've all had a, a, a laugh. We've all had a laugh, haven't we? Getting really aggressive, dead behind the eyes. <laughs> um, you might be I able to tell the double tea bag is kicking in. I'm very excited about that, Sheppy, and I'm very excited about today. So dear listener, welcome to Shoulders of Giants. I'm Jimmy. Hello, I'm Sheppy. We are the What If podcast for movie sequels, prequels, uh, TV shows, spin-offs, you name it, Sheppy. We are the people that will take your IP, nurture it, butcher it, do all <laughs> sorts of things to it. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and, uh, well, there you go. It was a fun, <laughs> wild ride whilst it lasted. I'll never do a clean one, Sheppy. I'll never do a clean one. No, no, no. That was that was the cleanest yet. No, I'm 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 loving that. I'm still cresting on the wave. Uh, that's <laughs> wonderful, Jimmy. Yes, we are. And today is a special one. Um, I think. Um, today we're talking about a sequel. Well, why do you say, Jimmy? The well, 1987 film. I'll give you a hint. Directed by Rob Reiner. Thank you, Sheppy, for giving me the date. I hadn't even actually sort of thought about it, but 87, nice. yes, Sheppy, The Princess Bride, my goodness, you set that for us. I mean, spoiler alert, this, I reckon, has been one of the tougher shoulders to stand on, honestly, like, mm -hmm. big time. Gold and Rhino yeah. and everything. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So we'll get to all of that, but yeah, holy moly. Holy Wonderful moly. stuff, Jimmy. Um, well, yeah, now... I, I, I knew that you had seen it, but it's not one that we have seen together, I don't think. Um, and we never, you know, so it was never like an uh, uh, an us film, I don't think. I mean, no. unless you can, no. So, so, so that's nice. Shall we just jump straight to the, the burning question? When was the first time you saw it? Because I'll tell you right now, I didn't see The, the Princess Bride in my deep youth or you know, when I was 10 when it came out. So with that in mind, I, I guess I came to it in my teens, um, maybe at college, maybe even as late as university. I'm going to say around college time, like 16, 17. I, but I don't I, remember the first time. I think I have exactly the same experience as you, Sheppy, which is to say I was really late to the party on it, definitely. This is where we flash back to the reality, which is you and I hammered and decided to watch it together <laughs> during like, the, yeah. the late teens. Um, yeah. but, but yeah. I see you with a party hat <laughs> over one eye, you know, the pointy one. <laughs> the pointy hat, not the pointy eye. Um, and it's a shame because it was right, it's right up our street for me. The magic of it is it's got exactly the humour that was swirling around us as kids. Like, it's exactly yeah. in sort of all the zags it takes, all the wrong footings, are absolutely perfectly judged, and the kind of thing we would absolutely lapped up in our pomp, yeah. you know, as kids. And, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's so true. But, yeah, and, and again, I don't remember the first time I watched it. It might have been university, and I liked it, of course, loved it. I wasn't, like, surprised, and I wasn't like, where has it been? 
I was still sort of finding random things, you know, like time bandits I didn't see until university either. So with that in mind, I got it on DVD and I watched the shit out of all the extras and the commentary and stuff. And Carrie Elwes, I never know. Is it Carrie Elwes? Uh, Carrie Hughes? Carrie Hughes. In any case, Carrie, um, he also did a photo diary when he was there shooting, which is included on the DVD. Um, and it's great. There's like a fucking, it seems like hundreds of behind the scenes photos that he took, like on location and on the set and, you know, with the crew and with Robin. And so, yeah, that's lovely. So it's a very well documented film. Which is nice. That's so cool. And I was going to mention, I, I, I remember on the Kevin Pollock chat show, Carrie came in and gave an incredibly yeah. like eloquent and detailed, you know, reflection on the shoot. And I can't remember any anecdotes from it, but suffice, but apart from just, I remember he had so many Andre, Andre the Giant stories that just sounded yes. awesome. Like if Andre... there's a big, there's a famous yeah. farting story with Andre. And also he stayed with Harold Pinter, I believe. And Harold Pinter like drove him around when Harold Pinter was at his height, Pinterness. And Andre the Giant was a basic unknown in the 50s or 60s. Um, and he said, you're a very nice man. And Carrie always, I remember telling that story, maybe on the Pollock, probably, but also probably, I think, on the making of Doc. Um, I, I've heard him tell all the stories twice, obviously, and that's fair enough. He's only got so many stories. The story that I remember him telling on the Kevin Pollock chat show was uh, when he was a driver before he became, you know, he was a, a jobbing actor and he got a job with Pinewood uh, being a driver on the set of Octopussy. And I think he went to fucking India and he's driving Roger Moore to set or to the filming location down the busy streets of India. And Moore's reading his newspaper in the back and like 20 year old Carrie Elwes shitting it in the front and driving like really carefully with like loads of camels and tennis players all over the, all over the street. But, uh, <laughs> the documentary that film and Moore is reading his times or whatever. And he looks over the top and says something like, you can go over 20, you know, uh, telling him, hurry up, you could you know, drive a bit faster, man. <laughs> and Carrie was like, oh, fuck, I've been shitted on by more. So so there you go. So I remember that. So good old Carrie was. This was the role he was born to play, which is a shame for him. But he's been great in his whole career. And he was in Stranger Things fairly recently. And good for him. He's never gone away. But this really is. And they capitalise perfectly on that with Robin Hood Men in Tights. But he is Errol Flynn. And it's and it's perfect. And he's the perfect age. Spoiler, I had to make this film, my sequel, only a couple of years after this, because I wanted this, this exact cast at more or less this exact age, because that's really important to me. So that I had to rethink certain things just because of that necessity for me. I'm curious to know. Where you went that's so cool, <laughs> Sheppy. Oh my god, that's immediately tingling. I, I've gone <laughs> up to date. I'm 2022, yes. baby. So there we go. We're gonna have two different well, I'm loving that. The yeah, the same, the same calf. Well, <laughs> look, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll hold that thought, but that's tasty. In any case, my point just being that Carrie Owens is perfect in that role and he's so good. And anyway, it's a perfect film. The script is perfect, the direction is perfect. Um, Rob Reiner. Now, I don't have this, so I'm probably going to get the dates wrong, but I know, I mean, he had a pretty much, I mean, okay, so there's, this is Spinal Tap in the early 80s. And then there's uh, The Shaw Thing, which is, makes the terrible mistake of only being good. But so it's, it's the black sheep because it's not five-star gold. 
So you got Spinal Tap, Sure Thing. Then I believe, oh fuck, is it? It might be Stand by Me. Okay, then, okay. then I guess um, Princess Bride. Then I guess Harry Met Sally, Misery, Few Good Men. Um, that's all pretty spectacular stuff. Yeah, it's a hell of a run, isn't it? Hell of a run. Almost back to back, basically back to back. Um, that is amazing. So good for him. Good old George and he's like a comedian. I mean, he's a comedian's comedian, isn't he? That's what's even yeah. more brilliant about it as well. Like some of the miseries and whatnot. You know, it's just what he channels for those movies is awesome. Misery was adapted by Goldman, must be said as well. Amazing. Yeah, yeah so that's maybe a good team. I think there, the, the order. It does go a bit wonky, doesn't it, in the sort of the... You know, but that's pretty good. That's a, that's a hell yeah. of a run. You know, not many directors and such diverse, like, you know, eclectic choices and styles and each one perfect. And it's like Richard Donner, each genre he goes with is, and Steven Soderbergh is a, is perfect. He just jumps genres seamlessly. You know, God, yeah, Stand By Me and Princess Bride were, yeah, I believe 86, 87, I think. Yeah, it must be. So back to back, man, that's cray cray. That's double cray. So good old Reiner. And yeah, you know, oh, what everything else, you know, good. Um, I also like William Goldman. And on that, I read his book, um, Adventures in Screen Trade, which mm -hmm. he wrote ages and ages ago. And I wrote, read that, I guess, around 2000. And then I also read his follow-up, um, Which Lie Did I Tell? And when he wrote them, there was at least a 10-year gap. I forget the details because I read them such a long time ago. But... You know, he was at very different points in his career. But he talks about Butch Cassidy, of course, which he wrote, and um, the great Waldo Pepper, which he did, and lot, and which is very, very interesting stuff. So I've always really liked him, and he's got a million, billion stories, and they're all fantastic. So those, you know, I, 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 if I start going into my whole William Goldman of it all, it'll, we'll lose it. We'll lose it, Jimmy. But there's a lot, and I recommend those books. And he also, and I'll get to this in a minute, but he also wrote the novel of, a, of The Princess Bride and then adapted his own novel into the film. Um, also, and I read that as well, and also he uh, wrote Magic um, with, with Anthony Hopkins as the ventriloquist who um, goes insane, and the ventriloquist takes over, uh, the dummy takes over. Um, Richard Attenborough directed it like late 70s. I fucking love that film. Did you ever see that? I've never seen it. No, no, I've always wanted to, man. That's great. I didn't even know Goldman wrote it. That's that's exciting. Yeah. Crack him. Goldman, I believe, also wrote Maverick, which we both like a lot. Um, the the adaptation of the show, the film with Gibbo yeah, and Foster in the garden. <laughs> well, there's a whole... That would be a sort of a good B-level sog, wouldn't it, that? Yes, yes. Given yes, the switch, they leave it on at the end. Apparently. Oh, yeah, well, okay. did someone tell you? Did someone, some, <laughs> did someone just recently fill you in on that? Um, just about uh, The Princess Bride, then. Um, so how many times have you seen it over the years, like since that first time? Yeah, I think it's turned into at least double figures, Sheps, because it is so special and easily rewatchable, isn't it? It's just, uh, yeah, so I, I, I have seen it a number of times. It was actually... I did rewatch it for this too, and I had forgotten little bits of it, and I just sort of, and it was interesting to just kind of certain things were better than I remembered, 
Robin Wright's role was slighter than I remember. It's yeah. still good and it's still pretty well written. She's still feisty as f and like, it, but you know, it was it was an interesting rewatch. You know, because a, a lot there's a lot of story out there, isn't there, around the casting of her specifically too, and how uh-huh. long it took him to get there, Princess Bride. You know, and that's right. that's all well and good, but it, what's interesting about it is like, you know, I can't imagine there wouldn't have been. I don't know. Maybe they wanted the unknown. Maybe they, you know, all that stuff, you know. But bottom line is, she's she's great, but she's she's not in it as much as I remembered. Um, you yeah. say she's feisty as f, but I will say um, my only I, I, beef with the film is she doesn't. She is pretty useless. She doesn't really do anything. She, you know, she she says cool things, um, which is cool. But she doesn't really help out much in any physical sense. That's true. Um, so that's my only beef. But well, in the um, Princess Leia being rescued, you know, and how she basically interacts with the players in Star Wars, you know, it's not. Leia like shooting two guns. Leia's taking people out. down. That's exactly what I mean. It's a two out of Leia. It's a two out of Leia is what I was getting to, yeah. But half just, a bun. Yeah. Half a bun. <laughs> no I'll people. tell you this. Um, that cast in Princess Bride is pretty spectacular. And also, I guess they filmed it in England. I should know that. I must know that. But it's got such a weird, like, English cast popping up, like Peter Cook and Mel Smith. They come to mind. Other people who I'm now blanking on. But just lots of people pop up. But then, of course, you've got your Billy Crystal and Carol Kane. Uh, I'm I'm your wife. That's amazing. So I'm a big fan of that. Yeah, they're great. It's a great cameo, isn't it, from Crystal? It's a great cameo. I think apparently Reiner was just like shitting himself laughing at Crystal's antics and had to stand way back because he was laughing so much so that his laughing would be picked up on the mics. Um, yeah, so that's nice. The good old Crystal and good old everyone else. And like I say, the whole the whole cast and Andre and Mandy Potemkin He's amazing. Amazing. That was a like wowzer when you start watching Homeland and you realise, you know. Oh, I haven't seen Homeland, but I know that there is a beard thing going on. So maybe he's my secret soul brother because I know (laughs) he rocks a mean beard these days. I think. (laughs) You say it. I can't unsee it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I want to say this about the film. It's really vicious. You know, it doesn't actually need to be, but it is, which I respect like the massive rat thing biting Wesley when they're grappling. It's like not necessarily, it's really nasty and he's in real pain. And there's lots of genuine peril throughout this film and suffering and pain, which is nice, of course, and there are real stakes. Uh, so I like that. Yeah, and it doesn't jar, does it? It gets the, that's the amazing thing about it, isn't it? That it sort of absolutely hits all the right notes on all the genre beats it's going for including the comedy and everything yeah it's amazing it's true it's true the tone um is well you know it works um which is which is good yeah i like that i also like the sword fight between the you know the man in black and and indigo indeo because it's like um apparently the script just read they have the greatest sword fight that has ever been recorded in, in history. Um, were was just the stage direction that Goldman wrote, and then at the moment in the sword fight where they switch hands, uh, the script then says, 
now it's um, it's like this is the next best, which is even better than the last best, which was just a minute ago. Now this is the next level, which is even better than that in the history of sword fights and cinema. And so that's nice. And that whole sequence, like you were saying about Raina being handling every aspect so so well, such a beautifully shot sword fight, and it's so smooth and everything is so classic. And again, Errol Flynn, that whole you know, lots of master shots. You don't lose anything. There's no choppy editing. And, it, and no shaky cam, and it's just really smooth and fluid, and the camera moves around, and it's great, and I like it very much. So that's great, and I like Bezik, and I like um, I like everything, and I like the villains. And Chris Sarandon is a massive cunt, and I respect that, and he's amazing. And Christopher Guest, talk about chameleon, astonishing, astonishing, and such a good character as well. And and the discipline to basically play it straight and then get one of my biggest LOLs where faced with <laughs> you know the prospect of a sword fight with Inigo Montoya, then he just kind of yeah. runs for it. Like it's amazing. It's just such a wonderful beat to that. It really made me laugh. And um yeah, I I totally agree, Sheppy. And just quick on the big sword fight, I, when you watch it again now, well, when I did with my new eyes, like it's so lovely knowing it's coming and then just how long they take in a beautiful way no gripes here from jimmy with the whole you know build up to it where they're climbing up the mountain and you know the man in black is chasing them on that and and right. just that whole sequence and inigo waiting for him as well like you know to then join them and to have the fight and the the, the banter between the two is just it's just wonderful it's just just so perfect that whole kind of and they're they're, yeah. they're both gentlemen you know, yeah. Just... yeah, it's really nice. It's wonderful. I, I think the first, like, I think the movie is probably five star. The first 40 minutes for me are like six star. I just love it. I really, really <laughs> love the opening of the whole movie and just how it all flows. And it, I'm not saying it loses anything. It's just, it gets into some of the beats that I'm less interested in. That's all. But it's only like right. 1% less interested. Do you know what I mean? That's all. And you you know, yeah, you, you've got to have a favourite part of something. You know, it's very rare that you're 100% even, you know, no matter what, you've always got your favourite bit by definition. So that's valid. And we didn't even mention Fred Savage and Peter Falk. What a double act. I always forget that the film starts on the computer game. It's really, like, jarring for a second because I, I always forget about that. Um, yeah. yeah, but that's nice. And good old Peter Falk. Being kind of needlessly aged up, you know, they've like put talcum powder in his hair and put on this like, I assume a fake moustache, but either way, it's all greyed up. And he and it's like, okay, I'm sure Peter Falk is probably in real life old enough to be Fred Savage's grandfather, but okay, that's fine. <laughs> I, I like that. And they're great. And good on Fred Savage, of course. Really good. And they get, they achieve so much in actually a very short space of time because Savage is so good. They can yes. do lots of beats quickly and get it, you know, have, have and I like the whole, yeah, like, Jesus, Grandpa, what kind yeah. of person is this? I like all of that. And then Peter Falk just being pure Peter Falk, like, are you finished? Are you through? Can I continue? Thank you so much. <laughs> it's great. I fucking love it. And I'm really deep into my Columbo recently, so that's that's that lovely. Really nice. Well. It's, he, has anyone been twinklier? And I'm including <laughs> Death and Burr in Miracle on 34th Street. Like, right. has anyone been twinklier? And even just the how he's playing with him and like, oh, you don't want to read that bit, you know, and, all, and skipping yeah, through. Yeah. It's really amazing. It's wonderful. Yeah. And like, yeah, it makes me really happy. And, and it, we... it, 
does it a bunch where it really sets up perfectly and you're instantly emotionally invested and it does like a hard jolt and it brings you right back and it's like you know, it doesn't get her it's like what the, the, the killer eel thing it doesn't kill her you're looking worried oh no and and that it's 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 good it does that like a bunch in the first third i guess and then again at yeah. the end and that's that's cool i like it it was really nice so can we, I know we're jumping a bit to the end-ish, Sheppy, but let's just cover it as we're talking folk. Like, so the as you wish, okay, of it all. What is your interpretation of that, sir? Because it's very simple. A, yeah, go for it. Yes. Mine is simply this. Um, we've established in the narrative, in the in the book, that when Wesley says, as, as you wish, he means I love you. So when he says, as you wish, at the end, he's referencing the book and he's saying, I love you to his grandson. That's exactly me too. Exactly me too. Yeah, they've just gone through, they've just watched something together, they've just read something together, they're quoting yeah. it to each other, much as we would. That's really nice. I completely And it is, uh, yeah. And, and I think the character, this is probably reading too, too much into it maybe, but um, the grandfather is saying as you wish and knowing that grandson will probably get it on the you know, reference level but not stop to think oh he's telling me i love you so he's sort of the grandpa is saying it for his own edification you know, he's enjoying telling his grandson that he loves him which is nice so i like that yeah i hear you i think there will be people out there thinking you know grandpa is meant to be wesley or something ridiculous but you know i think i think i'm i, I can only interpret it that if way if they walk out of the bedroom which is a very very established as being an 80s kids bedroom and they go out and the camera follows peter Falk out and they go out and it's basically like a mission impossible sort of set which means it's basically a set and they walk out and they're in like the massive countryside in florin and and the, the bedroom is inside the little cottage and that's like the double twist twilight zone ending where it's like <laughs> kind of like the prisoner it's like but what does that mean um it's nice it's either magical or terrifying so that's uh, yeah that's <laughs> yeah. one one thing you could do and like an old lady goes over to fork and it's meant to be robin right yeah yeah totally <laughs> but i don't i don't go with that and i don't think um, oh by the way just about the novel um did you know about that did you read it, I knew it was or a novel. You i've never read it i actually um was just uh, for a reason i'll come into it i wanted to just get a passage in um to my uh pitch so i ended up reading little chunks of it that were available oh. online and it, it's it was just a treat sheppy it's really right. funny and beautiful and well written and it yeah yes so i guess i read that around 2004 so i don't remember it that well but did you, when you were reading your snippets, are you aware of the what the narrative structure essentially was? Which is to say, instead of having the grandfather and grandson as the sort of narrators, William Goldman is the narrator. And he's like, this is a Florin fairy tale, which I've got from the Florin nation. And he goes through this whole thing. It's, it's just like George MacDonald Frazier does with Flashman, but more so. The whole thing about getting the rights, he says, look, it's really boring. There are so many good bits that I remember from my child, and it's all made up. But you know, Goldman's painting this whole thing, and it's all part of the narrative he's saying to the reader. So this is my quest to bring you the Princess Bride as I remember it from my childhood. Because as it turns out, the full text is really boring. And my grandfather, who read it to me when I was a little boy, 
um, obviously left out the bits that he knew that I would find boring, and they are boring by God. So I, here I am editing down, and things, you know, references to Florence satire from the 14th century, and really, you know, political things that don't make any relevant sense now. So I want to leave it at. But now, but then, like halfway through, just like you'll do a hard cut in the film he'll be really into something with Wesley and shit. And it'll be like, right now, William Goldman here again. So at this point in the in the original text, there's a whole chapter where Buttercup goes to this medieval farm and it gets into the deep political satire of you know, farming methods of the time. And I really don't think it's necessary for the forward momentum of the narratives one. I want to take it out, but the, the lawyers who own the original text, the um, Morganston's great 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 grandson who owns the, the the Morganston estate now he's he's breathing down my neck and it goes off on one in ways that I can't even like write a letter to this address if you want the next chapter which <laughs> I had uh, seriously and people would write in and then he would they would he would send them a letter over decades it's like Paul Rudd with Mac and me over decades it would continue where if you wrote a letter to that address saying, where's the chapter that you weren't legally allowed to keep in, but you said if I went to the, and and you'd be like, hello. So, oh, I can't, everybody, whoever, if there's one person listening to this, let me say this, just look it up because I could go off on one about the whole thing, but it's amazing. He just does this letter campaign. He's like, I'm trying to do it, but this lawyer is here. He goes off on one. There are characters and adventures and it goes right through the eighties and nineties, right up until like around 2003 where he's like, this is the final time, and now send an email to this address. Amazing. It's amazing. It's the longest, longest form gag. It's great. Um, and so that's that sums up the book. It goes deep. And also the, the structure of the main adventure story is the same. But of course, because it's a book, it really goes off on one in, here and there. Like uh, when they get the Holocaust cloak in the film, Fezzik is just like, I've got it here. And he pulls it out, like, really, you're like, boink. Uh, um, and you know, it's just like, Goldman's like, right, he just, Fezzik just pulls it out. Because in the book, it's like they go on a massive quest and get, have to get loads of different things, including the Holocaust cloak. And it's a massive bit, which would be an episode or two episodes if it was a TV show. But it's just like, I've got it here, boink. So that's nice. And there's, there's other examples like that, just to keep the narrative tight as fuck. So that's, yeah, I like that's that. That's awesome. I'm going to yeah. read it yeah. on that basis. That's great. And I, I'll just quickly say to our listeners, I'm very sorry. Like, I can hear myself doing a little echoey laugh, just slightly delayed every time you're um, cracking a quip or cra cracking a golden quip, golden quip as well. <laughs> so listen, uh, I, I'll, I'll try and keep them to little snickers that don't echo uh, as we get into the pictures as well. But, um, but yeah. Sheppy, that's bloody amazing. I can't wait to read that to the list. I'm just going to. It's really good. It's lovely. And good old Goldman. And I do recommend Adventures in Screen Trade and Which Lie Did I Tell? They're both aces. Yeah. Good old Golders. He's all right. I um, I'll just see if I have any other bits to definitely make sure I put in. Sheppy, we cover most of it. Andre the Giant's amazing in it. Like, just he's got yeah. such a sweetness to him. There's some, there's a yeah. very special energy around him, I think. Um, We've said the Chris gets run away. Great crystal cameo <laughs> I put. As you wish, just playing quotes we've done. The you amazing delivery of, um, you know, I want my father back, you son of a bitch. Yeah. And that's all amazing. And there's a whole story about that as well um, with, with Manny Potemkin. But, yeah, that whole build-up and, like, uh, you know, ask anything you want. And it's like, anything. How? But it's great. So, yeah, he that's really what the show is. He really sells it, doesn't he? He's... he's 
it looks like he's mortally wounded at one point and then just yes. his sheer resolve and you know need for revenge just it's a that whole scene is amazing i love yeah. that bit. i love that bit. yeah, yeah. It's, cool. it's core strength um yeah. it's good stuff and all of that and all of it's very nice and yes andre the giant bless him wonderful very gentle lovely man did a massive fart that lasted about 75 seconds um just went on and on and on and there was a pause and then rob ryan was like everything okay andre are you all right and he said i am now boss uh that's apparently something that happened which is amazing so i like that quite a bit <laughs> you wouldn't want it to be in that room would you <laughs> <laughs> no um, <laughs> not really not really um, hopefully oh. it was upside, outside on a hilltop or something <laughs> Now listen, I think if you're ready, I'm ready, and I cannot yeah, okay. bloody wait, Sheps. You've teased me, you've told me it's happening in the bloody 80s, or maybe 1990, yes. I don't know, but bottom line is, it's going it, to be I'll tell you right now. <laughs> yes, well, I did go, I did, um, I guess because I didn't want to step on too many toes um, and uh, give Ryan a, a, so it could be 89, but I've gone with 90, um, which is fair. I think it gives Ryan a, a chance not to miss out any of the others. You know, he might have to bump um, few good men to a year, but that's okay. Cruz and Nicholson will wait. Um, <laughs> so, so I've got uh, the Princess Bride two, nineteen ninety, aka Tulips Revenge, directed by Rob Reiner, Carrie Elwes, Robin Wright, Mandy Patinkin, Andre the Giant, with Peter Falk, John Candy, and Ooh. Diana Ross. Holy uh, plus plus introducing dot 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 as Tulip. I don't know who this is. If um, if the timing worked out a bit better, I would have liked Nicole from My Two Dads, but by 1989 even, she's too old, and she needs to be like, well, we'll see. Maybe. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not convinced. So anyway, so it's an introducing, so I don't know who plays her. And there are other people as well. Um, okay, so we open in a bedroom. Uh, we are never told directly what year this is, but the decor and toys, etc., plus lack of modern gizmos will suggest the past. And maybe sharp-eyed viewers will clock the tear a page a day calendar, which is on the nightstand, uh, reading November or Nov 14th, 1966. And uh, by the way, November 14th was uh, when Treasure Island uh, was first published. So there's a Little nice. you know, Rob Ryan having fun with something. Um, the bedroom door bursts open and a mother and a 10 year old daughter come in. Little girl is fresh from a bath and is wearing a 90. Mother is very angry and in a raised voice tells off her daughter, who apparently was playing too rough outside, and pushed little Mikey Hannigan into a muddy ditch and also ripped her dress, which the mother now holds up, which we see is also covered in mud. And the mother's like, You're a little girl, you should act like one, etc. Mother leaves the room saying that when her little girl's father gets home, she'll really be for it. And she closes the door and the little girl waits on the edge of her bed, very nervous. And she hears like a car pull up outside on gravel and the car door open and close, footsteps on the gravel. And then with slightly wide eyes, she hears the front door open and then shut. And then a muffled conversation between adults downstairs. She hears footsteps coming up the stairs and then down the landing, getting louder and louder as they approach. And the little girl has her eyes fixed on the door and the bedroom door opens and her father enters and it is Peter Falk and he doesn't have grey hair. He, they just didn't, it's just Peter Falk, it's just how he normally looks. And 
we can assume the little girl is Fred Savage's mother. So that's nice. And that's how I want, that's how I kept that and kept them so I could have Carrie Ellis and so on in the right age, I figured. He has black hair, but he still has his black moustache. And so the father comes into the room and he's like, what's all this I hear about pushing over children and ripping dresses? And uh, the girl says, it wasn't my fault. We were playing and whoa, 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 now just one minute. When you say you were just playing, why do I get the feeling you're not, we're not talking tea parties and doilies? Those games are boring. Aha. Uh -huh. So what was it this time? Cops and robbers, cowboys and Indians. And the little girl just looks silently and the father reads her lack of expression. Oh, let me guess, pirates and monsters. Well, they were all playing and Mikey was a giant squid and I had to save my ship, so I... So you pushed him in the ditch. He was a squid. Aha, uh -huh. you know, your mother was blaming me for this. She says I should stop reading you so many adventure stories. But those are the best ones. And melts a bit and he sits down on the edge of her bed. As well, yes, I suppose they probably are. But don't you just want, just want to hear a nice romantic story about princesses and unicorns? No. Well, you know, there are a lot of good romance stories out there. You might like them if you gave them a... But your stories do have romance. Oh, sure. Plenty of romance. That's true. Romance. Not to mention pirates, villains, monsters, creatures, whirlpools, tidal waves, the massacre of men, the kidnapping of little girls. Exactly. And the father relenting. I meant to be in here admonishing you. You can't go pushing little boys in the ditches. That's how you get a reputation. But no buts, no ifs and haze either. And he sighs. But before you go to bed without your supper, I suppose you're going to want to hear something. Please. And I suppose you don't want to hear something too fluffy. Ugh. Well, okay. Maybe just the first chapter. What will it be? Would you like to hear the Princess Bride again? No. Okay. Uh, how about the marriage of Fezzik? No. Uh, okay. Would you like Tulip's Revenge? Yes. Oh, what a surprise. <laughs> tell your mother. And from now on, if you see a giant squid, just tell him to behave himself and leave it at that. Okay. Yes, Daddy. So Father Very reaches up to take the book. <laughs> he takes the book off the shelf. And we see like the row of books. And some are thick and some are thin. And he takes... Uh, what he takes the book, and next to this book, it, we see the Princess Bride is on the shelf. But there are many others. Uh, we catch a glimpse of the Princess Bride, but also the marriage of Fezzik, Florin for beginners, Miracle Max takes a vacation, and other stories, the fire pit and the toadstool, and more. Father takes the book and sits back down on the bed, and he opens it up with a, okay, let's see. And he reads, Tulip's Revenge by S. Morgenstern. And as he reads, we cut to a beautiful swooping shot over a lush forest before finding a gap in the canopy of greenery, moving in on a little cottage with smoke coming from the chimney. We hear the father in voiceover, in all the centuries and all the worlds, of all the souls who managed to find another, of all the perfect encounters in perfect moments of perfect pairs connecting, there were none who shared such love as Wesley and Buttercup. And we move on down and we see in the cottage and coming out of the cottage now, we see our heroes together being in love and uh, the voiceover. Wesley and Buttercup were happily married. 
Other than the many adventures they had already shared, they had spent many wonderful hours together that felt like days, and days together that felt like seconds. And each hour, second, month, and day in each other's company was as if they discovered their love anew. And they stare into each other's eyes and they move in for a kiss. And hard cut, I'm just going straight die hard to copy, hard cut, back to bedroom and daughter interrupting, saying, yes, yes, I've heard all this. Well, you know, get get to the running away, get to the kidnap, be patient. It's all part of the experience. And he reads on, and we see Wesley and Buttercup madly in love living inside the huge forest in this beautiful cottage. And we see the seasons change, snow and sun and spring and stuff, and the voiceover. And then their happiness grew even more when their wishes were met and Buttercup became pregnant. And we see her with Bump and Wesley attending her kissing hand and Bump. And as often happens, after not quite a year, Buttercup gave birth to the most beautiful baby the world had ever known. This baby was so beautiful, so gorgeous. One smile from her could melt an ice giant's heart. One laugh could quench a dragon's rage. And they called this most beautiful of all babies, Tulip. And we see the baby with blonde hair and rosy cheeks and all adorable. And the father, as the years passed, Tulip enjoyed a childhood of love and games and joy and laughter. We cut hard to the bedroom, little girl, but... And the father, why does there always have to be a but? Why can't Wesley and Buttercup and Tulip just be happy and enjoy their life? Because that's boring! Oh, I see. Well, all right. And he reads on. However, both parents knew their child would not be raised to be defenseless. And so as she grew, Tulip was taught to fence by her father how to think by her mother. She learned all the skills and talents both parents had perfected and accrued over their years of living and the adventures and experience they had survived. Tulip learned languages, history, geography, mathematics, and science. And in voiceover, little girl, ugh, homeschool, and voiceover, oh, right, yeah, a true torch. No infant had ever had such a perfect childhood, and yet there was something missing from her life, adventure, passion, and most importantly of all, purpose. All that changed one evening when her mother was heckling with a trader and her father was in the barn milking and Tulip went up to explore the attic. And there she found something wholly unexpected. She found, we go back to the bedroom, little girl on the bed jumping up and down, bouncing, the book, the book, the book, Wesley's diary from his time at sea, his log, his captain's log, his secret, Wesley had once been the dread pirate Roberts, the most feared of all pirates to sail the seas. And Tulip read it all, eyes as wide as saucers. And we see her reading the diary and also discovering in the same chest a gold medallion uh, with interesting design which she holds up in front of her face, which reflects the gold and the father voiceover. And so it went that Tulip discovered her, his pa her parents' secret. And after many adventures, here they were now, living a perfectly boring life, content to keep Tulip in the same cage of tranquility. Tulip was desperate to learn more and be taught more, and most of all, to be shown more. More than this world and more of this life of danger, peril and adventure. And so one knife, after one argument too many with her parents, one attempt thwarted, one request denied, Tulip packed a small bag, taking some minor possessions and her father's necklace, his gold medallion, which carried the seal of the dread pirate and all the terror and danger that this name once carried with it and still did. And she ran away. 
For if she would be denied adventure from others, then she would discover some for herself. And we see all this. Yeah. And by moonlight she fled across dale and hill, forest and riverbank, until Tulip, by the way, she's probably about, I'm going to say between 13, until Tulip reached the small harbour village of Lockhart, next to the port of Gnardestad, east of the estuary of the kingdom of Bautelar. There, as dawn was about to break and weariness finally began to claim dominance over her impressive stamina, Tulip slank into a corner inside this shanty town's tavern, which was busy and heaving, the sailors enjoying their last night of steady floors before the tide cooled their ships and beckoned them back to the waves. And we now see Tulip by the fire in this busy tavern, and um, she sort of flumps down in a chair, and she's approached by a seemingly friendly bar wench who offers her a drink and uh, voiceover. And feeling she should pay or leave, she dug into her meager purse, and that is when the wench saw Wesley's medallion, the medallion of the Dread Pirate, with the Dread Pirate seal. And the wench asked as casually as she could, and we see like all this, you know, but we don't hear what they're saying, we just hear the voiceover. Where did this child come upon such a thing? And Tulip made her biggest mistake yet. She told the truth. And, you know, we see Tulip mouths this, but it's Peter Falk's voice. It's my father's, she said. Her innocence would have been charming, if not for the wrath of danger it brought with. And so, with fake smile and duplicitous intent, the wench took payment for the drink, and then, minutes later, took payment for Tulip. For there was one who had been searching for just such an opportunity and would not be denied. Uh, for the wench was in the employ of Gert, self-appointed empress of the oceans, mistress of the waves, queen of the pirates. And over this voiceover, we see in like a shady alley around the back of the tavern with like a cat going and barrels and you know, steam and shit. Uh, we see Gert um, listening intently, and this is Diana Ross. And she's uh, an impressive pirate lady uh, listening intently in the shadows um, whilst the wench animately describes all she has seen. Um, and so, um, oh, Gert like, carries like a scarab, a scarab and a dagger and a pistol in her belt, and she's in a puffy shirt. Um, we then see Tulip falling asleep by the fire, and we slowly move in on her eyes as her eyes start to close. Sleep touches her face, and then a, a blanket gets suddenly thrown over, and she's like, woo, woo, and she's carried out by a large man, and she was struggling in vain, and the voiceover. So Tulip was snatched by the agent of the Pirate Queen, for an idea has formed. If this is indeed the daughter of the Dread Pirate Roberts, then this is exactly the opportunity the Pirate Empress had been looking for. And with remarkable and terrifying speed, the Empress hatched a plan, made payment, and took Tulip into her ship. And we see like this large pirate galley sailing away from land into the rising sun. Um, and then we go on, we see like very, very quickly, Wesley and Buttercup discovering you know, that she's gone, the open chest, the missing shit, and knowing their daughter, they're like, fuck, let's go. So they make haste on her trail. Um, we get back on board the, uh, on uh, Gert. I'm just going to call her Gert, because I don't want to keep calling her the Empress. Um, on Empress Pirate Queen Gert's ship, um, the plan is they're going to lure the Dread Pirate Roberts in for a meeting by making it known that they have his daughter. And so a meeting takes place out in the middle of the ocean next to this tiny, tiny one tree island, which is basically just a rock, which is slowly sinking. 
and the voiceover is like, it used to be the size of a city, then a town, then a rather small village. By the time Tulip saw it, the island was down to about the size and shape of a farm in Wales. And we have this little rock and next to it is Gert ship and then coming up out of the horizon and then opposite an impressive sight and it's the pirate ship Revenge, that of the Dread Pirate Roberts, the powerful and slick and muscular ship. The gangplank lowers and we have a grand entrance of the Dread Pirate and it is Indigo Montoya, mask covering his handsome face. Um, I, I keep calling him Indigo and so I'm going to apologise now that it's going to come out in the future, Indigo. If you like. um, he is given Gert's ultimatum, surrender your ship and crew or else this daughter will be put to death. And he scoffs and is absolutely going to let Gert do just that, frankly, and murder this little girl. And Indigo to Gert is like, Madam, please, if I indeed had a daughter, as you claim, then would she have this blonde hair? And he's like, waves his heel through her blonde hair, these red and rosy cheeks. The blue eyes and soft features. Look at me. Look at her. It's perfectly clear. This is no daughter of mine. But the Dread Pirate Roberts is quite distinct, no? Who with skin, eyes, hair, and features such as these? And he trails off in realization. And he's and then you know the voiceover. Uh, and all at once, Indigo put it all together. The medallion, the child's features, her father's eyes, her mother's beauty. And he clearly saw whose child this must be. Not only that, he saw that all at once he could not let the child die at the hands of this pirate, nor could he fight for risk losing her to the same fate. And so, for the first time in pirate law, and certainly the first time in his own lifetime, Indigo. The Dread Pirate Roberts did the unthinkable, the unimaginable, the untenable, and surrendered. And so he gave the for the record. <laughs> That's a brilliant moment. <laughs> Let me take some water. Thank God I don't do too much more fork. I think it's killing me. <laughs> Mate, you're fucking smashing it, smashing it. You just got it. Like, it's so good. Like the dialogue between the kid and the grandfather, the way you've written this novel feels like the novel in the movie as well. It's the perfect, perfect like voiceover stuff. It's great, man. And even just like you know, she did. She said the most dangerous thing or craziest thing. The truth, or whatever. Like you know, it's, it's amazing, man. It's making me very happy. And um, yeah, and I just <laughs> and actually just not to detract too because I wrote this down for later. But let's just get it out of the way now. Just earlier, you were talking about. Um, Wesley being in the barn milking, and I, you're much more disciplined than me. I would not have been able to get away without a wanking guy in there somewhere, like, you know, in his barn. All right, Wesley's milking again. All right. Hey, man, I, I, that's that's your interpretation. Thank you, thank you for that. Um, that's good stuff. So. We see Indigo give Gert his ship and she strands his crew on this tiny, tiny island and they sail away. Likewise, she scuppers her own ship so there can be no escape. On board the Revenge, um, Gert is all set to execute the Dread Pirate Robert. She's got Indigo. Well, I'm always going to keep calling him Indigo. I'm so sorry. She's got Indigo. Um, and, you know, she, ha she has him right tied up. She's got a massive rope and it's all the way around him. And... Um, He's like, you know, you should be thanking me, Eddie. I, I spared your crew. And he says, you can kill the dread pirate. You can torture me. You can remove my limbs. You can so shut my eyes. But one thing you cannot do is make me wince. And then two massive sailors pour a huge bucket of fish guts all over him. And he winces. 
And he's like, that, that's a new one. And it's all dripping down his face and shit. And Gert explains, as I'm sure you know, we are right now above the rim of inescapable guppies. With this seasoning, you will be quite appealing to their tastes. And so in you will go, down you will sink, and into their bellies you will fit in tiny mouth-sized pieces. As Indigo is like, and yet it is the absence of your face that most excites me and hastens my desire to jump. And she uh, slaps him hard across the face and fish guts spray across the, uh, her closest men who are standing next by. Uh, Indigo is uh, positioned on the plank and below the sea is already reacting to the few drops of fish guts that have fallen and uh, there's much frothing and activity in the water. Uh, but Gert shows some humanity. She's, she offers Indigo a deal. He's already going to spare his crew and all that um, on the sinking island, better than nothing. But she says, Indigo, you need not die. Just reveal to me the secrets of your ship. And also she wants the maps and locations of all his much stashed loot. And he refuses calmly. And he's like, Madam, you may have been given this ship, but it would never be yours. And my treasure, I'd rather passage of time turn the jewels to dust and the gold to copper before allowing them to one such as yourself. And Gert is like, think carefully now. You would rather a painful death than succumb to me. Please, this is not even a choice. Merely a moment in time waiting to happen and keeping eye contact. And, you know, he's still totally tied up with his arms to inside by the thick rope. He just sort of hops off and, and pops off the plank and just goes straight down into the ocean with a splash. And Gert and the crew go over to the side and look and see Indigo uh, disappear in a frothy splash. And he sinks fast and deep. And Gert, looking down, says, so be it, dead pirate Roberts. And her crew are like, <laughs> and under the surface, all around him, as Indigo, he plummets uh, to the ocean's depth. And he is surrounded by schools of killer mouth guppies, which are like basically giant, giant piranhas. But the whole front half is just nothing but circles of teeth. And they circle and spin around him, moving closer as he disappears into the depths in a rousing, rising cloud of bubbles and descending killer fish. And Tulip watches the whole encounter on the deck the whole time, and she's mortified. You know, she's got some dude like second in command holding her. And now in control of the revenge, Gert and her crew and Tulip set sail. Meanwhile, Wesley and Buttercup are on the trail. And we see um, in practice various skills that both have acquired. And we've, it's hinted at more than once that they've had adventures since, you know, that we've last seen them before they settled down. They've both been through, you know, stuff and good stuff. And but they've had a lot of adventures. Three seasons worth, I'm saying. Um, and so they're following the trail. They're putting like detective stuff and, you know, working shit out. And um, they reach the tavern in this uh, little uh, harbour village. Where uh, you know, and they they're questioning the wench who sold her out, she sold out Tulip, and lots of oily tavern dwellers and washed up sailors with hooks for hands, etc., gather menacingly around Wesley and Buttercup. And then we have a wonderful fight scene with Wesley and Tulip working, uh, Wesley Wesley and Buttercup um, working as a glorious team. And effortlessly, uh, Wesley and Buttercup fight with clipped conversation and biting wordplay as they're like twatting people with bottles and shit. Um, and they're sort of flirting with each other. And at some point, Wesley takes a swig of beer while fighting, removing the cup from a table instant before Buttercup like kicks some dude straight through it, smashing it to pieces. 
Buttercup turns out to be nails, and she moves like a dancer on ice and uses all props or whatever is the hand to fight smoothly and expertly. There is banter, swordplay, high kicks, low blows, at least one wooden chandelier swing, and someone getting thrown, you know, sliding down the length of the bar, crashing into bottles, etc. at the far end. Classic. Without looking, Wesley is talking to Buttercup and he ducks as a, a chair flies over his head and he just like raises back up again. And by the end of the brawl, all the sailors, etc., are sprawled with Wesley and the Princess Bride standing back to back in the centre. And they obtain the info from the quivering wench about selling out Tulip. It's like a nice steely moment where Buttercup acknowledges that the wench, to the wench, to her face, is like, so you sold out my daughter. Like, and you know, the wench is like, fuck. Um, but they leave, they get the information, they go, and Wesley and Buttercup get their hands on a, a boat, and it's a bit of a shithole, a bit of a bucket, and it's filled with nothing but lemons, and Wesley's like, very good at keeping scurvy away, and Buttercup, yes, but can the same be said for ants? And, it, and it's a wreck, but it's good enough, and they give chase, and Buttercup is like, but how will we follow? And Wesley, have no fear, my darling, takes some hours before the wake of a ship totally fades, and a ship such described can easily be followed. One only has to know where and how to look. And so they do. Uh, on board the Revenge, Gert and Tulip are spending time together. Their relationship starts as spiky. Gert is nasty and cruel. Tulip is spunky and biting. It's quickly clear that both secretly dig the other's style and they slowly bond. It's a real jack and hook wannabe. I um, moonlight on calm waters. There's a scene where Gert teaches Tulip a pirate shanty, which they sing together. And Gert sings like, the lady she sails, the lady she fights. They denied her the daytime, so she claimed all the nights. And then Tulip sings, a warrior too many, a demon to some. Then fight with a sword or she'll pull out her gun. And then together they sing, and she sang to the sea from the depth of her tomb. She sang to the stars, she sang to the moon. She sings to the tide and all those she saves. For she is the pirate, the queen of the waves. And then um, we have a shot of the, uh, the boat sailing away into the moonlight. And uh, we hear uh, Gert say, good night, Tulip. I'll most likely kill you in the morning. And uh, we cut and we, we go back to Wesley and Buttercup and there. They're having little adventures. And I don't know how much I was thinking about having like adventures with you know, but I'm, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna make some edits and leave that maybe. But I think I think I'm gonna leave that. But you could say Wesley and Buttercup maybe meet a massive whirlpool which they have to navigate. Um, maybe which uh, by the way, I better just jump in and say this. I was going to mention I totally forgot in the book of Princess Bride in the novel. It goes on to like the new edition in 2003. He writes the first seat, the first chapter for a sequel, um, which of course then I've read. And I, you know, obviously I've done nothing like it, but it's called Buttercup's Baby. And um, it's really dark, the first chapter and stuff. And like Buttercup gives birth for like 37 days or something, like really hardcore. And there's a massive whirlpool. So I might be taking that from that, but I don't know. It might be a deleted scene anyway. But anyway, Big whirlpool, but they do something cool to get around it. Um, now we go back to Gert and we find out about Gert's plan, which is to take over Pirate Island. Now, Pirate Island is basically a trading post, an outpost, a place where in history it has acted as a safe haven to any and all pirates. 
all existing disputes are put on hold, no law, law vessels or know about the, the island's location or even existence, it's totally neutral territory, like the hotel in John Wick. And it's currently run, controlled, ruled by uh, this hardcore pirate, an old nemesis to the original Dread Pirate Roberts, we find out. And this man, we learn, is the Pirate King. Um, and Gert plans to frame Dread Pirate Roberts by sailing his ship, the Revenge, into Pilate, uh, Pirate Island, then open fire, attacking and destroying the main compound uh, and kill, hopefully, the Pirate King with it and just fuck everything up. And then with the king dead, or at least his kingdom in shambles, he will seize power while everyone else is scrambling for revenge against Roberts, whose ship is, you know, of course, attacked. So that's her whole plan, and she recounts all this to Tulip, who picks some holes in it and suggests ways to, you know, remedies. And Gert digs it, and they bond more. And Gert at some point hints that she has reasons other than the acquisition of wealth and power for attacking the pirate king and pirate island. Um, and the king, she says, took something very valuable from her, and now she must have her revenge. And um, meanwhile, on their trail, in the wake, uh, the echoes of broken waves and shadows in the sky, Wesley are following the trail. Uh, to reach the, uh, now they work out through clever ways that they, they're heading to Pirate Island. So uh, now maybe they catch up to the little island where um, Dread Pirate's crew was stashed. And that would make sense. And then they go, they took our ship. They're going that way. They said they're going to go to Pirate Island, or that's probably, or they're going in that direction. That direction, that's Pirate Island, something like that. So Wesley takes the, the stranded crew, and they're all like, by that point, they're all really, really tight on the island because it's sunk even more. They're all just like really huddled together, like however many, 15, 20, and they're all like really smelly and shit. So that's a bit, so suddenly Wesley and Buttercup get a crew and they set off after the, the revenge. And they realize they have to take a shortcut if they're going to get to Pirate uh, Island first. Uh, so they have to pass through the Gates of the Waves, an ancient port in the center of all known shipping lanes, a conjunction which is guarded by the Wave Keeper, Poseidon's great titan. Uh, so they sail there um, and, he, and um, you know, it's, it's basically like a sort of a weird impossible jagged floating rock thing in the middle of the ocean. And absurdly, this is like, quote unquote, the only passage you have to sail through this little archway, even though it's absurd because it's in the middle of the ocean, but to get to the next bit, you have this like a toll booth, basically. Um, and so they get there and, um, and there they find the wave keeper, who's a massive and imposing entity draped in a massive cloak made of seaweed and cockles who bellows at them three riddles to be answered to secure passage. And any wrong answers will meet with a terrible end. And between the three of them, uh, they are able to successfully answer all the riddles. Um, but they notice something oddly specific about the answers in that they all rhyme. And Wesley's like, wait a minute. And he says to the wave keeper, you have asked some wonderful questions. I'm glad I found the answer. And the keeper says, yes, very good. But do you have to stay to Banda? He says, hmm, good point. I suppose you're never going to let us pass. It depends on your sails and mast. And the keeper <laughs> removes his hood and is revealed to be Fezzik, who chose to be left there some time ago by Indigo to contemplate and meditate on life after pirate life proved too violent for him. And Wesley is like, and how's that working out for you? To be honest, it gets pretty lonely. 
but I did clear my mind. Oh, yeah. Now when I feel lost or confused, I just take a deep breath of fresh ocean spray and my sinus clear right up. Not to mention, I have fish most days for supper. So Fezzik joins Wesley and Buttercup and they all follow um, Gert's trail. There's also like this um, Dread Pirate second in command who's also sort of there, who might be played by someone random in English. Uh, let's say Carl, Carl Halman. So they all, and he, uh, they all head off to Pirate Island. Gert continues to bond with her captive and more things as they, they go. Tulip teaching her, uh, she's, you know, she's teaching Tulip like pirate tricks and so on. Um, Tulip thinks that Roberts is dead and that's bad. She knows this is a nasty person and the crew is nasty and everything they're doing is bad. And she knows that the pirate queen you know, is, is nasty and has killed many people and all of that. But she can't help herself, Tulip. You know, she's fucking digging it. Um, and she also helps her. There's an insane storm and maybe she saves Gert's first mate from, and maybe she saves the ships from sailing into rocks or something. Um, and so, you know, she turns into like a, a monster wave and she has mad skills learned from her dad and shit. Um, so Fezzik, Wesley, Buttercup are meanwhile making good time. Um, a lot of activity in frothing water then surrounds Wesley, Buttercup, the, the whole ship. And a huge sea monster has been sighted in these waters, no doubt hunting all the killer guppies. And Buttercup is like, are you sure it's only interested in the guppies and not, for example, us? And Wesley's like, absolutely, my love. You see? And then from below, the boat is just smashed from beneath by this massive sea monster. Um, and the boat is almost flipped and Wesley is thrown high up into the air and then falls crashing into the sea. And the boat crashes down, but it's upright and so on. And Buttercup's like, Wesley! And they steer the ship to him as he's swimming as fast as he can towards them, almost there. But then the sea creature bursts up again and attacks Wesley. Um, I see this as kind of like a huge sort of fish snake, but with like a jellyfish head, like bubble thing. Um, and with like basically also maybe like a kind of an alligator snapper, which comes out of the center of the bubble, you know, uh, maybe. Maybe that's fucking weird and 1990. I don't know. Yeah, why not? Anyway, um, as he battles this underwater, Wesley is doing very well. But just as he thinks he might have won against it, a tentacle snaps up and grabs his foot. And it pulls Wesley down into the depths. And he's spent after this big fight. And he's out of breath, energy and time. He begins to lose consciousness as the darkness of the sea engulfs him. And then a blade cuts through the water and the tentacle, freeing Wesley's leg. And a hand grabs him by the shoulder and pulls him up. In the ship, Buttercup is freaking out for her lost Wesley. When his head bursts up onto the surface, Fezzik goes to the side, reaches down and pulls up both Wesley and the guy who saved him. Buttercup and Fezzik stand gawping at the coughing Wesley and the panting saviour, who is Indigo. And he escaped the killer guppies, we learn by using razor-sharp coral to cut his binds and avoid being eaten by hiding in a giant clam. Um, and he, he recount, and it, it, like the guppies fled at the first sign of the massive jellyfish monster. And when Indigo saw that the monster was distracted by another, he took his chance to make a swim for it. And then he recognized Wesley immediately. And now the four leads are all together again on the ship. Um, and they sail after the stolen revenge with, uh, and she, with renewed vigor arriving at Pirate Island, and they arrive just before Gert, 
Pirate Island is a few miles squared. It's rocky, cliffy, lush jungle a little bit, nice bays. Uh, the main hub of buildings are like wooden shanty type things built into the rock and main the round, uh, the main cove, which is a semicircle. The entrance uh, narrow and defendable. And there's a big gate that can go across and close against it. The Pirate King lives, lives in a grand house, which overlooks everything. Uh, the Revenge is uh, just almost there, maybe hiding in the next bay, readying the attack. Um, and they're all ready for their surprise attack when Wesley, etc., arrive. They know of uh, Wesley and Indigo know of the warning bell, a huge bell that sits atop the cliff overlooking the cove. And they must sound the bell to warn the Pirate King's men. Out of options and getting desperate, Indigo hits on a plan. He fashions a slingshot out of like his headband or something. He grabs a lemon from the hold and he gives it to Fezzik. And Fezzik spins the lemon in the sling at super speed and then fires the lemon through the air like a fat yellow bullet. And it explodes on the side of the bell on top of the cliff, sounding it and alerting the islands to the imminent attack. Gert and the Revenge are now surrounded by the Pirate King's vessels, and Gert is forced to crash the ship into the sandy bank and flee into the jungle, hunted by the Pirate King's men. Wesley fights off some of her pirates, Indigo reclaims his ship, and Fezzik throws some people all over the place. Gert takes Tulip and leads her into the jungle, but is pursued by Buttercup, who catches up and confronts Gert. Buttercup has a small face-off with Gert, and Tulip chooses to run to her mother and away from Gert, but casts a sad look over her shoulder. Gert flees. Now, you might assume this is the climax. I know a lot's happened, but everything happens super fast, Jimmy. So this isn't, <laughs> this is just over midway. But <laughs> so think about that. Uh, Pirate King is introduced now. Uh, he is grand, imposing, but jovial. And this is John Candy. Uh, and he's like, hi there, welcome, <laughs> make yourself at home. And then to Fezzik, are you the lemon thrower? Oh, oh, well, I wouldn't give for an arm. That arm, when the cricket season rolls around, ho, ho. Uh, the king welcomes the group to his home. And as he thanks them and everything, he thinks he will bestow great witches, riches and wisdom to them. Indigo implores him, um, you know, just take care of us. That's cool. Don't blame the dread pirate for what was about to happen and everything. And uh, the king's like, of course, of course. Uh, in the king's uh, opulent home, they dine, and as they talk, king's hospitality and candy-like manner, uh, that it's lovely and everything, but, you know, a little bit sort of, you know, I mean, for example, the king drops in that he never takes prisoners, and they're like, well, yeah, I mean, he's a cutthroat pirate, and he's like, yeah, and he always kills his own crew every few years, you know, it's just for the best, it's just for the best, and he never shares his wealth with anyone, and anyone gets their hands on anything, well, yeah, you know, yeah, what are you going to do? And they were like, all right. Um, but now, you know, he also shares his crowning achievement. His finest engineers have constructed basically a hot air balloon um, and they're filling it with a, with a rising gas. It's very light, um, maybe. Uh, and it is this that he will forever be a legend and undefeated. You know, it flies. Can you imagine? You ride on a little basket. You sit there, the balloon carries you. Imagine being in a fleet of ships. You see your enemy ahead and whoa, look up there. They won't believe their eyes. Me, sailing over them, dropping banging bombs and heavy balls and flaming things. All the joy I plan on bringing, the laughter, the screaming shrieks of maddened terror. Ho oh, ho, what a gas. Uh, his enthusiasm is charming, but the look in his eyes is one of mania. 
Wesley's subtle suspicions and questions lead the king to give himself away further. Uh, the king is a rotter and um, had wronged Gert a year ago. And he sort of drops casually into the conversation. Oh, Gert, oh, sure, yeah, yeah, sure. Boy, does she have a bone to pick. It turns out she, he snuck into her home and uh, murdered her husband and daughter. And there's another reason why Gert bonds with Tunic. It's dark shit. Um, no, it was just by the best. Um, and it was in cold blood and away from pirating and all sorts. And so now, over candlelight and wine, Pirate King Candy lets the mask drop entirely, you know, underlit, you know, low lit by the candles, revealing his true nature, that of an evil, sadistic tyrant. And his plan is to murder all the pirate captains who he have journeyed to Pirate Island for sanctuary at his invitation. He's going to promote any other underdog sailor to join his army kill anyone who doesn't want to do that and have all pirate ships sail under one flag, his flag, united under his leadership and rule. And this will be a pirate armada, one to lay waste not only to the oceans, but to invade and conquer the land and kingdoms there as well. And now as he finishes laying it all out, he looks to everyone sitting around the table and they are frozen, not reacting at all. And Candy's like, oh, I'm sorry, am I boring you? I know my plan is good, but I need to work on my delivery. So between that and the heavy food, I don't ble blame the heavy lips. And, but also, and I, I admit I am no chemist, but it may be the drugged wine that's slowing you fellows down. And uh, all slump down in their seats and Wesley falls face first into his soup. Um, he's like, oh, but I haven't poisoned you. Oh, no, 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 as a thanks for saving my life. And he says, like, instead, they'll be sold as slaves and sent to the world's end as sky miners. Uh, so King Candy summons his number two, an eye-patch-wearing, scar-faced nasty, and orders the men uh, to remove the uh, unconscious guests. But Tulip didn't drink the wine, and she's faking with the classic one eye open and then quickly snap it shut again. So as the bodies are being shifted to awaiting packing crates, Tulip escapes. She's hiding, darting about, pretty desperate, wondering what on earth to do, and she's about to be caught by a very nasty man. And that nasty man, he sort of goes, what is that, a little rat? <laughs> is then probably stabbed from behind. By, and it's fucking Gert, who had circled back through the, um, the little shantytown from the jungle to evade capture. And together, Gert takes Tulip, maybe fights off some more baddies, and they free Wesley, etc. And basically, we're coming up to the third act. In pairs, they strike blows against the king, sabotaging his own ship while dealing uh, with his villainous second-in-command. At this point, the king shows his true evil by um, revealing to Indigo that he is indeed, you know, he's got the whole crew on this little boat, you know, all of Indigo's crew who have been previously rescued from the island. And he goes, oh, oh yeah, you want to know? I said, I said I'd take care of them, didn't I? And they're all in the little ship in the center of the harbor. And he orders all the guns on all the other surrounding vessels to fire on it. And the boat with all the crew is blown to bits, utterly destroyed, all hands lost. And Indigo is fucking furious. And the horrified heroes are forced back into the undergrowth and flee, uh, being hunted by uh, trained nasties who excel in finding and catching unwanted guests. Island obstacles and swamps and weird creatures. Uh, siren songs uh, in a little bay, um, getting all the men be like, ah, but they're thwarted by Buttercup, who sings back, beguiling the sirens, who then fight amongst each other for Buttercup, letting uh, the heroes escape. Um, mm. They have one or two more close encounters, um, and then they re-engage with the king, 
the king has all the pirate captains invited for a huge feast and he's going to poison them all. Uh, the heroes must stop him, save the pirates. Wesley and Indigo have dealt with many in the past as sworn enemies, but now he has to gather everyone else and convince them to fight against the pirate king and save all the captains. And Wesley gives a speech like, we've always been willing to die together, so why should we be willing to kill together? It seems only logical, yes? So all the pirates are now united against the pirate king, and there is a big set to between all the pirates lured to the island and the king's own men, his own large crew. Buttercup uses her winning personality to lure a jungle creature, a massive snake with four hairy giant tarantula legs, out of the jungle and attack the baddies. Wesley uses sword and cunning. Indigo uses strategy and a lot of gunpowder, and he destroys the king's home in a massive explosion as some small revenge for the murder of his crew. And the king is very angry at this. Uh, Fezzik lifts up the huge wooden gate, um, which has come down over the mouth of the cove, um, and he frees all the ships, plus he allows more ships to come in to fight against the king's pirates. Um, Eyepatch, second in command, a nasty man, um, is now aboard his own ship, and he has the cannons pointing at the revenge and indigo. Eyepatch yeah. smiles a grizzled smile, and he's about to order his ship to open fire on the defenseless revenge. Bezik lifts right up above his head a huge galleon, just lifts it right out of the sea, uh, and he throws it at the second command ship, and it sails through the air. And Eyepatch looks up, you know, his arm is raised, ready to drop, saying, Fire! But he freezes and he looks up, open mouthed at the shadow of the falling ship covers him and his men and the whole ship deck. And then the ship lands on top of his ship, on top of him. The ship is destroyed. Eyepatch himself is just totally <laughs> smashed to pieces. Um, and Fezzik, you know, you know um, Indigo looks at him like, and raises his arm like, what the fuck? And Fezzik's like, I ran out of cannonballs. I ran out of cannons. I just used that ship. Is that okay? Um, Gert saves Tulip from the king who grabs her and is about to kill her. Gert and King lock eyes, and the King turns and runs, throwing Tulip off a cliff to aid his escape. And Gert could give chase, but she lets him go to catch Tulip and save her life again. She now fights side by side with Indigo against the King's men. And as uh, they now fight back to back, they secretly like castles or ad, you know, they secretly admire the other's fighting techniques. And with swords and uh, each fighting off two or three men at a time, they banter. And Indigo is like, forgive me for asking, but I must. How did you steer the revenge here so fast when you didn't navigate through the killer guppies or whirlpool of badness? And Gert, quite simple. I simply navigated the route from a star charge recorded by day. That way the points are closer together. And Indigo goes, and thus a shorter distance. Remarkable. It's nothing. You should have seen me charge for child demon's waterfall. But the child demon's falls are impossible. They run straight up and only with poisonous acid for water. Yes, but with a copper-based boat, there's a trifle. Astonishing. Inconceit. And he catches himself and looks at Fezzik and they share a little eye contact. And then they shake off and go back to fighting. Um, they beat back the enemy pirates and the king sees he's in trouble. He flees to his work chamber and emerges over the flaming rooftops of his burning town in his magnificent hot air balloon laden with gunpowder and bombs. And he shouts out, so long, you wretched lizards, you tongue scraping toads. I'll sail away and be back when you least expect it with blood in my eyes and knives in each hand, one for all of your throats. And Indigo now snatches up a bow and arrow and hands it to Gert, 
and she notches the arrow and Indigo lights it and she takes aim and fires and the flaming arrow flies true, a perfect dart towards the balloon. And King Candy says, ooh, pretty. And the uh, arrow hits the basket, which is laden, and the whole thing explodes and flaming debris falls down into the ocean to be swallowed up forever. And all of the King's pirates give up upon seeing the destruction of their boss. All others cheer, Wesley and Tulip and Buttercup embrace, Gert grabs Indigo and plants a massive kiss on his lips. Fezzik blushes and does the classic covering his eyes but sneakily looking between his fingers peak. Uh, Gert and Indigo therefore get it on and decide to stay on Pirate Island to rebuild and rule as a new king and queen with all remaining pirate captains and crews loyal to them and a new golden age of communal piracy will begin. Wesley and Buttercup are very proud of Tulip. They have a little moment and Tulip's like, so what now? Home, right? And uh, Buttercup's, oh, indeed. And Wesley, not a moment to lose. And Tulip nods with acceptance, but a little sadly. And Buttercup, but I see no reason why our route home should be, Wesley, direct as such. Buttercup, no, a more relaxed path home may just be the order of the day. Wesley, I mean, we have a glorious ship just sitting here waiting to be put to use. And so with that, Tulip becomes the new Dread Pirate Roberts, and Wesley is her first mate, and Buttercup is the ship's muse. And with a new crew of pirate heroes, the family sets sail away in Tulip's revenge. And the father's voiceover is like, so this unbeatable family united, strong and re ready for whatever the world and its many lands and oceans had to offer. Off to find strange new lands and further adventures over the horizon, under the sun, together. The end. And we cut back to the bedroom and the father closes the book. And in bed, little girl lies back spent. And she says she's sorry earlier for acting up. All pirate games will remember that even the toughest, meanest, fiercest pirate needs a strong crew and family of friends and loved ones. And she will try to remember this in future games and life. And the father's like, <laughs> I can't believe I read the whole thing. I don't know how you do it. Must be a siren song or something. And she's like, thank you, Dad. And father, pirates and monsters, sirens and peril. Nothing a hero would have any trouble with. Good night, honey. Good night. And the father replaces the book on the shelf and kisses his daughter on the forehead and moves out of the room. And as he starts to close the door and turns off the light, uh, she in bed starts to drift off. And the father pokes his head back into the room and softly sings, the lady she sails, the lady she fights. They denied her the daytime, so she claimed all the nights. And then the little girl face pops up from under the blanket and says, a warrior too many, a demon to some. Don't fight with a sword or she'll pull out her gun. And now the father and daughter sing together. And she sang to the sea in the depth of her tomb. She sang to the stars, she sang to the moon. She sings to the tide and to all that she saves, for she is the pirate, the queen of the waves. And the father closes the door and we have credits. And we've bloody got a tagline. Um, Monsters and love, pirates and knaves, blood, danger, creatures and hope. What a perfect day for an adventure. Uh, which I think That's is so sort of like the original pirate, you know. Something like that. So, so there you go. My throat is knackered, son. Don't do a fork. It will kill you. Oh, wow. 
Oh, wow, Shakti. Fucking hell, man. I gave you a fucking hell, man, over the top of that, at the beginning of that tagline. I think we caught the whole thing as well. There were little <laughs> silly feedbacky chuckles from me. Again, apologies, listeners, but it, it culminated in a, a snort when you gave it the Jack and Hook wannabe. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> that's going to be a treat to listen to for the poor listeners. Um, Sheppy, I mean, there's so much there, right? The fact the boat being called Tulip's Revenge is just so beautiful at the end as well. And there's just such a nice moment between the two of them with the singing as well. It's really lovely. I love, like, you really caught the Wesleyness of it, particularly with the dialogue. It's really good. Like, just even on the boat saying, it will be all right, darling, and then it just explodes. You know, <laughs> just perfect. You know, just the way you did that was wonderful. And just the... There's just, like... I was well. I could get to that, which is the main point that I've taken away from that pitch. But so I was wondering as well at the beginning, like Diana Ross is such a zag, and when you said to me as well, like you know, casting wise, was really can she really do this? What's what's Sheffy really doing here? But then I really I knew. I mean, of course, I'm waiting for the Inigo and the her to get together. Of course, it was going to happen. And like so, <laughs> when you said Jimmy, I'm only halfway through. Like it wasn't even about where's the tulips revenge thread going to go and come through from. It was about when are they getting together. I knew that was happening, so that's nice. So I was I was already prepared and happy. Um, but yeah, flipping it, man. I don't know how to say this without sounding like a, a big dick, a big wanky dick, but basically your imagination ship is off the fucking charts, man, and perfect. Like, just even how you decide to bring Fezzik back and have him in that position, I saw it coming as soon as you sort of <laughs> didn't tell me who was playing him, that, that particular wave king, wave break of wave guy. But um, yeah, yeah. That, you know, it was just, but it was so nice and such a like twinkly little sequel moment that you have to have. It's perfect, and it just made me really, really happy. And but then just like you know, this you threw away like the siren songs moment, and then like you give Buttercup the perfect moment in that point, and like man alive, Sheps. Like I tell well, you, thank you. you need to just you know the Goldman estate needs to be aware of this one, maybe. <laughs> yeah, no, he's 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 suing. He's suing. No, it's over. It's over. It's all over. Him and Lucas, furious. Don't get me started on e, Stephen E. De Salza. He's out for my teeth. So thank you, thank you very much, Jimmy. I will say um, this. Yeah, it was that was nice. I I, I enjoyed. I I didn't say earlier, I guess, but yeah. Wesley is that sort of character. It's like Fassbender in uh, *Inglorious Bastards*. That kind of yeah, we're in a bit of a pickle. That I just like that shit, um, which is another reason I really wanted them again, just to have more of that at that age, because I like that. It's nice. It makes me happy. That's so cool, man. That's so cool. And look, I've got to tell you, you know, I have beyond all other pitches. Yes, of course, it's got mine goes with like a little bit of a weightier beginning and then drifts. But I then really have not given you anywhere near the imagination, certainly not really the moments in the second half of the movie, I would suggest. So far as to say, I just get you to the inciting incident with mine and then I'm just going, here's some thoughts for the rest of it. So unfortunately for me, I have gone with the more traditional pitch approach you know, more than any other picture I've ever done today, like where they're like, well, we could consider this, we could consider this as if I'm in a Hollywood uh, boardroom. Oh, I'm know. digging that. And, um, well, that's really but... what it is. <laughs> I mean, we this was never the, the, the 
basic story outline podcast. That was never on the posters. <laughs> um, the, the, but, the, the heavy treatment pod. So, no, pitch away, please. But I just honestly, feel so... At least someone will be doing their job. <laughs> I feel so sad that, that beautiful ending you crafted has to, you know, be followed with this. But we are where we are. And, you know, what I'm about to give you, well... That it should follow is inconceivable, Sheppy, but it's going no. to follow nonetheless. So um, there we go. Um, <laughs> I'm loving it. I'm a, I'm a quiver. A quiver. I always am. I am. <laughs> um, okay, Sheps. Well, we've got the Princess Bride's Daughter. So we're going to similar line. Um, 2024, which is when it will officially come out after it's been filmed. Uh, yes. We have uh, Fred Savage back classic dad and nice. i've got this next big kid as kid um <laughs> i don't know who that is to be honest um, i didn't even put here somewhere no blooming idea i guess if if we were going back a decade probably like luke from modern family would be a good foil or something nice. know, maybe, but i don't know if he's yeah anyway doesn't really matter the next great kid who's going to go on to amazing things Maybe, um, my, yeah, if only I could have had Giovanni Rubisi, but I, I had to have a lady. <laughs> um, now, uh, the key thing here is, and you've done it beautifully with Tulip, like, you know, the, the, the main character, I guess predominantly, or the feistiest one, and the one that might all hang on, is the daughter. And uh, I've called her Lily, the character. I debated having uh, Emily Hampshire, Stevie from Schitt's Creek, um, as the daughter of um, oh. and uh, Buttercup. She'd probably need a blonde wig, etc. It was a bit, I don't know, just I wanted that sort of sass. But then I realised, no, you know what? Jennifer Lawrence never does this kind of movie, and I'd like to see her do this oh. kind of movie. So I'm putting That's her in nice. as Lily. Um, and then we got Robin Wright back as Buttercup, Carrie back as Wesley, Mandy back as Inigo, uh, we've got um, Chris Sarandon. Oh, I should say, same as you. I definitely, I know it's hinted out quite strongly at the end, but definitely has the Dread Pirate Roberts as well for for uh, Mandy Patinkin. Nice. Um, now, here's another thing, Sheppy. That's a bit silly, but like, now I think I'm right in saying this, and it's ridiculous because I only saw it like four weeks ago, or whatever. But Prince Humperdinck is left on the board, disempowered, embarrassed, yes. but still in in position, basically. So. That's exactly where I still have. So Chris Sarandon is back as Prince nice. slash King Humperdinck. Um, and then we've got, uh, oh, we haven't got Andre the Giant for perhaps obvious reasons. And um, But we have got uh, Danny DeVito as a character called Hattic. We've got uh, Eugene, Le Eugene Levy as oh, King Clementius. Um, you have on some shit, Creek. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's going to be, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway. <laughs> and then we've got... Um, <laughs> I've got Sasha Baron Cohen in a cameo as another impressive clergyman. Oh, brilliant. Um, I can't even remember whether I've put these in these guys in here, but I, I think I've got Carol Kane and Billy Crystal back um, as, as Max and Max as my family. We'll, we'll, we'll worry about that when we get there. Um, <laughs> um, and then we've got uh, Zach Braff as, en I've got his name is Eniko. I don't even know why I chose that name, but his name is Eniko, the son of Inigo. And um, we have David Cross in the cast as well. And I'm calling his character Tobias because he's basically going to play Tobias. <laughs> brilliant, <laughs> brilliant, yes. <laughs> um, 
Now we are, you alluded to this earlier, Shep, people are going to copy the exact sort of template here. We've got the nice. title card, it's the same font or whatnot, and it says Princess Bride's yeah. Daughter. Then we hear of course it's the same font. We're talking Jimmy Town. Come on. And um, <laughs> so we, we hear coughing exactly as we do at the beginning of the, the original. Um, and then still over title card, the kid's voice just says, no, no, wait, wait. And we see the flashes to the kid. He's in bed. He's playing a computer game. And um, he's up to his like, you know, neck in the bed. And he's playing a computer game. And he's practicing a fake cough. And he tries more of a hack. And he's obviously basically trying to <laughs> pretend to be a bit unwell. Um, and then we hear on the computer game, it's like a drum roll. And here comes the second pitch. And it's like a souped up 2024 baseball game with bells, whistles, wind speed, etc. You know, it's a very cool version of a baseball game. Um, and then uh, we have Savage. Fred Savage's dad coming into the room dressed in black. This starts with a lot of death, Sheppy. I've got to tell you. It starts oh. with a lot of death. But don't worry, there's, lots, there's a couple of chuckles to be had. Uh, but Fred Savage is the dad, comes into the room dressed in his, his uh, black suit, ready for a funeral, and just says, are you ready? You know, in that sort of slightly angsty Fred Savage way. Um, and then he goes, uh, and the kid's like, Dad, I don't know if I can make it. I don't feel so good. Gives it the hack. We've heard the kid practice. And then Fred Savage says, let me see. Feels the kid's head and just goes, no temperature. Whips the duvet back. And the kid is dressed for skateboarding, pads on his knees, everything. And Savage is like, we don't have time for this. Get your suit on. And anyway, so we get to the funeral. Um, it's the funeral of uh, Falk, granddad, or great-granddad to the kid. And, um, and Savage is speaking at the funeral. And he says, my grandfather used to say when he was my age, television was cool. I'm not going to do my club because I want to be able to speak <laughs> a few meetings today. <laughs> television was called books. And I remember once I was sick and he read me the same book every day for almost a week. He always said that this was his favorite section because it made him think of grandma. So, Sheppy, I'm going to say to you, let's just indulge for a moment. I've actually just copied and pasted. This is where I was Googling that got me the book as well. Uh, a little bit of Goldman Prose Genius. And if you imagine over this in the funeral, we get that sort of almost Superman 2-esque or Karate Kid 2 or what are the Rocky movies? Like, you know, we get a little bit of a montage of lovely Princess Bride moments like happening underneath this little quote from, uh, from Goldman. So um, this is lifted directly, uh, I think, from the novel. Um, so I have stayed these years in my hovel because of you. I've taught myself languages because of you. I've made my body strong because I thought you might be pleased by a strong body. I've lived my life with only the prayer that some sudden dawn you might glance in my direction. I've not known a moment in years when the sight of you did not send my heart careening against my rigged cage. I've not known a night when your visage did not accompany me to sleep. There's been not a morning when you did not flutter behind my waking eyelids. I think that's just such a beautiful, beautiful passage, funeral. Um anyway, back to Granddad Falk's house. Savage sorting through bits and pieces um in the evening, finds a key in a drawer. There doesn't seem to be a cabinet to unlock in the room until he spots an old oil portrait of uh, Granddad Falk on the wall. And I put his eyebrows looking especially confused, smug and wispy all at the same time. And Savage walks over to the portrait. Sure enough, it's concealing a little safe. Savage unlocks the safe and, and there's some papers in there, a few bits and pieces, a few trinkets and a manuscript signed by S. Morgan Stern, the Princess Bride's daughter. And Savage gives it the holy shit and calls out to his wife and son. 
um, and he walks through with the manuscript into the lounge, wherever it is they are, and he says, I didn't even know there was a sequel. Do you guys want to hear this? Do you want to hear this? And the kids, you know, on his phone with it, you know, and I put that, the kid, you did it so beautifully with all of the ins and outs from the beginning, Shepard the kid goes through the sounds lame gamut of like, you know, done and put it, and um, and I just said here, it'd be nice if Savage is getting really worked up about the fact that there's a sequel here. And the kid does a Google on his phone or something and says something like, Dad, how could you not know there was a sequel? There's like 17 volumes. But, you know, and I think a little bit like you did too as well. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I took a slightly different tone, but I did the same thing. Like, so just a couple of teasers here. If you were to pause that nice. and look on the kid's phone and zoom, <laughs> zoom um, there, there will be like a chronicle of adventures and I've put here Montoya's Mediterranean Madness, a Moby Disc style escapade with an ego as the Dread Pirate. The cover has him wrestling and a dried octopus, funny enough. <laughs> um, you've got then Fezzik's Big Top, how Fezzik rescues various oddballs around the land, Robin Hood style, and forms something of a traveling circus where they all get a cut and everyone is happy. And again, from the original story, all help him conquer his nerves and come to see his first show, Muppet Show style. If <laughs> you really squint your eyes and pause the film, there's a book called Conceivable, the origin story, surrogate IVF's journey of Vizzini's parents as they go through a fertility struggle and a <laughs> miracle max. There you go. <laughs> to, to, to oh, that's... A little. I love it. <laughs> um. So anyway, so the in for this is <laughs> Savage is going to read to his wife and son in his grandfather's living room um, and, uh, and uh, while they've been going through his house post-funeral. And I've just put the usual interruption, cool moments, um, but I think the definite beat here is his wife will definitely drift off to sleep while he's reading it and the son will remain on tenterhooks. So um, we have uh, the, the, you know, Savage saying, but just for the freaking hell of it, because it's fun to do a Columbo, the Princess Bride's daughter. Fezzik's funeral brought a crowd far and wide across the land to pay their respects. And we see Buttercup Wesley attending with their daughter Lily, Jennifer Lawrence. In fact, word traveled beyond the land to the high seas. And we see Mandy, uh, well, Inigo, showing his son, Inigo, how to wrestle a shark. But Aniko, <laughs> oh, did I say this? I don't even know if I told you Aniko's being played by Zach Braff. I think I did, didn't I? Oh, yeah. nice, nice. Maybe not, but anyway, he's, he's Aniko is played by Zach Braff, um, and um, and Aniko has his head in a book, but and seems totally disinterested in what his dad's doing. <laughs> and um, and they're basically Aniko like still wrestling this huge shark is like, your name is Aniko Montoya. I am your father. Be prepared or die. <laughs> And so variations <laughs> on that are going to be the line twist for this. But nice. <laughs> um, anyway, while he's wrestling the sharks, one of his other pirates <laughs> comes over to him and whispers news of Fezzik's death, you know, and, and his eyes well up. And so we start with the funeral. All the gang are there. Um, and, um, and and during this funeral, Iniko Zapraff gives sort of Lily some flirty little glances and she's rebuffing them and has no interest. Much like yourself, my background on her, it's like she's been trained up by her dad. She's nails as fuck. She's really cool. Yeah. It all. Um, service of this is officiated by a cameo from Sasha uh, Baron Cohen, who <laughs> channels and completely homages Peter Cook and gives it the... Funerals are a terrible time for all. <laughs> and I've literally spelled funerals F W U N. Brilliant. I should hope um, so. 
at one point Wesley is looking over, you know, the coffin, which is obviously ridiculously oversized. And <laughs> yeah. under I shouldn't have laughed at that. I really shouldn't have laughed at <laughs> Poor that. Poor old Andre. Poor old Andre. Um, the clues uh, in the name. <laughs> and says under his breath, uh, and I've just put in his really good British accent. I don't even know that I could do it as clipped and beautifully as you did, but you know, you are a unique, a hero. There will be no other. And the voice next to him says, "You're right. He was my brother." <laughs> so I came with the old rhyming as well, Chef. And, um, uh, and this is Danny DeVito as Hattic with um, another oh, little twin star gag around the size difference. Um, and uh, Wesley gives it a double take and a bit of a Wesley eyebrow. At the end of the service, a horse comes galloping into the fray, an envoy from the new King Humperdinck. Tobias, David Cross, uh, is on this horse. And the message is that the newly appointed king wishes to see um, Wesley and Buttercup uh, as a matter of urgency. And, um, and I, God, I forgot I wrote this. It's been a week since I wrote this, Shabby. I literally, like an old tome, have blown the dust off as I'm reading it. <laughs> my own bloody joke. But every sentence delivered here is punctuated by a trumpet from Tobias. So it's like, you know, <laughs> and then like every sentence got a trumpet after it. And then uh, eventually Wesley gives it a must you after one of the trumpets. Mm. And, uh, and Cross is like, you're right. I packed my castanets somewhere. And he starts tapping himself. You know, so <laughs> the key plot point here is that um, whilst Humperdinck is now king, he's still pretty much impotent after his humiliation at their hands all those years ago. And many from other lands see his appointment as a, as a weakness for the land and an opportunity to invade, not least King Clementius, uh, Eugene Levy, um, the evil King Clementius, famously evil. Um, so uh, Buttercup, Inigo, and Wesley um, have the ear of the people uh, will and will be able to convince them to fight for their king. Um, so uh, they are summoned basically um, to, the, uh, to the castle, and to and, and sorry, I should have said that key plot point is a bit of exposition where the gang, including Inico, has gone with them, go to the castle, um, see Humperdinck again um, for you know possibly the first time since they had their battle. Um, but then the, the the bottom line is Humperdinck is kind of explaining this. He needs their help, otherwise they're going to be invaded left, right, and centre. Kang, the three of them, um, convince the people to rise up and and help him defend the land effectively. And while they're having that conversation, we cut back to the the, the village where the, the funeral was happening. And um and we have some so an envoy from the king basically arriving to capture the kids. Um and I've put here there's two separate things happen kind of juxtaposition. You've got Lily putting up an epic awesome fight um against these guards, but ultimately getting captured. And um, and then Eniko, Zach Braff, the, the, the kid of uh, Eniko, um, caught reading by a guard. And I thought it could be played by another throwaway British comic like David Mitchell or something here, you know. Brilliant. Um, and Mitchell has him at knife point and is about to like wrestle him out of his seat or whatever where he's reading his book. And, um, and Braff gives it the, would you excuse me just, I'm at a really, would you, while well, I just finish? And then of course, <laughs> of course, of course. And they have that little standoff and like the guy just waits for him to finish the bit he's reading and Zach Braff goes for it. And then, uh, and then of course, David Mitchell standing there, can't resist it. With his, you know, I've, I've been meaning to read that one. Is it, is it any good? And then they have a little bit of a chat. And everything <laughs> as well, but, um, but anyway, captured as well. So the kids are captured. Um, and then we have uh, back at the castle, um, Buttercup and Wesley and Inigo obviously declined to help and um, and Humperdinck says I thought you might say that 
perhaps this might help you think again. Take a look out of the window and uh, the, our famous trio eye each other suspiciously and then look out of the window um, and, um, and directly opposite them is another window and they're looking into Tobias washing himself in a really murky looking bar and, uh, and he gives them a really creepy camp little wave with a like, big Tobias Cheshire grin you know and uh, they're crucial for the extra evils here and um, Tobias seems to have a sick toe making him possibly the bastard son of, of Count Rugen Christopher Guest oh. and um <laughs> And Wesley sort of looks at this, though, and, and Tobias goes, I'm not sure. And uh, Humperdinck says, the other window, the other window. And the trio sort of shuffles to the next window. And then Buttercup gasps. And Amigo immediately spins and says, son of a... And, uh, and basically outside, um, you know, they've got the captured kids and they're tied together and they're on a toad cart being brought into the castle grounds. And, um, and effectively are being held prisoner um, at the expense of these three going off to try and rally the kingdom on behalf of Humperdinck. Um, and, um, you know, of course, there's a sort of a, we could fight you off, but, you know, the, the volume of men that the, the king has, et cetera, whatever, essentially. Um, but, but what they decide to do instead in leaving the grounds is to um, rally the land against the new king themselves rather than um, rally the land to work with the king. And then that's basically my inciting incident, Sheppy. And I've just got some some Great. thoughts for you here. Um, I've got then like, you know, uh, Danny DeVito's Hattic joins the gang in their mission. Turns out it is actually just as strong as his brother, despite being, um, you know, half the size at least. There's a key scene maybe halfway through where um, Eugene Levy, King Clementine, who hasn't had much to do, um, uh, you know, perhaps in the first half of the movie, and it's actually been portrayed in the first half super duper straight. I put almost like Iron Man three, you know, with uh, yeah. your uh, oh god, what Ben, help me, Sheppy, Gandhi, God, how can I not? Um, Kingsley, thank you. Um, and uh, it's actually been portrayed straight, like Chris Getz, like Ben Kingsley, and um, glowering, right. almost scary in the first half. And then comes face to face in a surprising way with the group in the woods, um, and the arm, his army is camped in the woods, preparing for attack. Um, and of course, they have a bit of a standoff. Uh, Danny DeVito's Hattic, because he's so strong, ends up holding Eugene Levy, mm. uh, Clementine in the air with one arm and is about to throw him against the tree or something. And then Eugene <laughs> Levy explains himself and actually turns out he's a really super decent guy. He's actually got a really oh. solid plan for infrastructure, jobs, welfare, equality, a health system. It's a very exciting time. It's actually a pretty good cool, <laughs> It's just really stupid, actually. <laughs> Clementine needs to be assisted and should be a good uh, guy to be brought in. Um, I, I didn't really work up but a couple of Wesley and I feel so embarrassed putting this down against what you did with that beautiful relationship. But anyway, but a couple of Wesley, you know, maybe the theory is that they've they've lost some of their original spark, perhaps they're about to be empty nested by Lily again, like yours is like Tulip is kind of hungry for adventure. Um, they're definitely not um on board with uh, uh an Eniko and Lily engagement, but Inigo <laughs> seems to be quite keen for his son to be sort of being paired up with uh, with her um, of course their true love wins through in the end I've said you know I've, I've just said one thing I would love to see those two have is a bit of a directions argument that could be lifted from any married couple's car journey um, where you know 
they just have a little bit of a, a you know i would like to see them pull the thread of okay they've had the world's the most amazing kiss but now we after you know what is it was the reality um and uh and perhaps they have a moment where they they leave one another and reconcile but just on their terms around like deciding to go a different way or whatever um yeah more interestingly and funnily um i think eniko and lily's experience in captivity at the castle might actually prove to be quite pleasant for Eniko. <laughs> I've got him like, you know, Zach Brown has actually enjoyed some great room <laughs> service and like, you know, and, and maybe they're even shagging the two of them. They get it on. Like, you know, <laughs> it's, it's absolutely there, but it's totally on Lily's terms. Like, you know, while she's trying to work out a way to escape and not be too bored. And um, and then, um, and Lily at one point overhears that Humperdinck's plan is to sacrifice all of the villagers to Clementine's army. Um, with no reinforcement from his own and the whole point is that will be the distraction while he can come around the back of Clementine's army and then surprise him but you know essentially everybody is expendable that's outside the castle that is the absolute strategy um and um and in a convoluted plot I put during, during the time <laughs> of the castle um Eniko uh, convinces uh, Humperdinck that he's not celebrated his inauguration fully and should put on a play and um and of course a part is written in that play for Tobias. So there's a whole like you know, <laughs> absolute channels is in a blue man. And um and uh and then basically Lily thinks this, and encourages it as well and thinks it could be the perfect cover for an escape attempt. I put it as a zag. At one point, Eniko has a few beers with Tobias and uh they really get on brilliantly. And it's this <laughs> kind of idea that Tobias probably is Christopher Guest's son, but it's that whole like redemption and reconciliation. There's actually a chance for the next gen. And um, and the two of them get smashed together. Tobias falls unconscious, and Eniko, completely unprepared to be outside the castle gates, suddenly finds himself with keys outside the castle gates. <laughs> kind of it's like a Monty Python-esque scene where he's just He's kind of just totally unchallenged and he's like lovely evening out isn't it so one of the guards and the guards go yes sir yes you know and he's just like taking it back the step okay so i'm gonna mm -hmm. like you know that kind of thing you know yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um anyway eniko is the least prepared to be out the gates in out the gates re-finds the gang and they all resolve obviously to go back to the castle and rescue lily um i i put like <laughs> In in the climactic scene, Eniko is strapped to a catapult, Robin Hood Prince Thieves style, to be shot over the wall to rescue his new love. And um, and Eniko is able to, his dad is going to like, you know, release him and he's able to utter the immortal lines to his son. Your name is Eniko Montoya. I am proud to be your father. Prepare to fly. <laughs> and then, boom, and then wow. that breath goes over the wall. And then, um, but when they get through, of course, Lily does all the rescuing. Um, and, and, you know, this climax takes place during the play um, that, that was written by Eniko and is being now being performed without him there. Um, and perhaps there's a moment, <laughs> isn't that funny, but it's making me chuckle. I remember <laughs> it made me chuckle writing it. Uh, but, but yeah, maybe Tobias in the play is midline, forgets his line and does the full like Tobias finger to the lip, like absolutely breaking character and everything. And asks mm -hmm. like you know a cue to you know and, uh, and it's the moment that like you know uh, Buttercup enters and Tobias is so lost in his line and uh, mm -hmm. enters the room and says something like the show's over and Tobias is like no no it's not no that's not it <laughs> anyway and of course you know Humberdink's finally defeated Clementine's installed everyone's happy ever after and there's a lovely moment that um, 
you know, happened back in grandfather's house where Savage and his son have a bonding moment, Sheppy. And that's that's my yeah. very loose Princess Bride's daughter for you. But um <laughs> That's wonderful. Oh, cockles warmed, cockles warmed. Everyone's a couple okay. of chuckles. I love I, it. I'll allow myself to say a couple of chuckles in there for me <laughs> and us. Whether the wider world agrees. For us, for us all. Uh, <laughs> wonderful. I feel like I've eaten a crumpet. I'm all toasty. Uh, lovely, Jimmy. Really, really nice. Um, no, I, I the, the whole it all merges together perfectly. It's it it works. It works as a whole. It's great. Really good. I think like the way you went with all the fantasy elements, Sheppy, there's just some brilliant ideas. I don't read enough fantasy or watch enough fantasy really, but everything you not saying you would be plagiarizing, but you know, everything you sure, said sure. sounded like so cool. Why haven't they done that yet before? Like even just having the gate in the middle of the water and you have to go through it also it's really it's such a visual, stunning idea. I mean that that is a concept. Forget Princess Bride alone, like that, like as a Stargate style thing, is its own freaking thing. <laughs> that was the most articulate <laughs> I've ever been. Um, so anyway, yeah, there, there we go. Thank have you. It. Well, that's nice. Well, no, it's all it's all in the churner in it, the butter noggin. Um, yeah, sure, that's how I'll go out. I'll, I'll mention a butter noggin. Uh, Jimmy, thank you for all, and also. Thank you for your your wonderful pitch. Lovely, really lovely. And as always, I always think this, but yeah, I, I can't wait to hear it again. It's like, yeah, it's it's tasty, tasty stuff. Yeah, so thank you. So Jimmy. Yes, look, yes. I have a suggestion, right? But I think this may be too um, big. <laughs> We might be thinking, okay, it's one thing to do bloody Beverly Hills Cop 3 out of Milestone, quite another to do this. I would love Sheppy, as I know the world would, and I know we both have had this one in our um, thoughts, surely, over the whole time of Shoulders of Giants as to when we might do it. But what about a, again, it's a bit of a canceller. We're taking out one of the franchise. Um, okay, well. It's so, all done uh, with love. Yeah, an alternative Indiana Jones 4, Sheppy. Oh, hang on. Here comes trouble. <laughs> That's a tasty meatball. <laughs> Do you um, I'm bloody Is it too big for what we'll No, be it's not too big. Absolutely yet. not, because we've just done Princess Bride, which was massive, but it, but not in on that level. We've got Beverly Hills Cop just like just recently, and we have Back to the Future. So no, it works. Absolutely, it's not too big. I say that's wonderful. I love it all. I love it all very much. How very on much. earth do we end a pod like this, Shaps? This level of fantasy. I mean, I don't know. Do we do we go to bed? Do we put on a hat and walk out the door? Um, I, I I have no no idea. Do we interrupt ourselves with an independent narrative and sort of do a hard cut to someone telling someone else a story of two people doing a podcast and really break? Is there even a fourth wall in podcasting? Have we just found a fourth wall? And so that's I exciting. I like wall. that. I like that idea. I think you've cracked it. Therefore, as you wish. You know, I was trying desperately <laughs> to 
somehow get in to this gibberish that I'm sprouting, as you wish. I'm like, I can't connect the dots. I can't. Oh, I'm trying. I'm going to give up. I'm going to throw them all to Jimmy. He won't let us down. He'll concoct some really clever wordplay that will lead in perfectly to as you wish, which is clearly the way to end the podcast. Uh, so, yes, uh, uh, not so much a segue as a highway to hell. <laughs> so I'm loving all of that. So thank you very much, Jimmy. As you wish. What do you think about that? <laughs> Conceivable. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means.